Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White. Happy to have you with us and happy to have our crew here in the studio today. Good morning, Philip. Good morning, guys. Bob. Hello, guys. Dustin. Good morning. Brian. Morning, Brad. So we have several good things to talk about today. We're going to talk about silage, everyone's favorite topic. We'll also talk about picking your bull for the your operation and a little bit on vaccination programs for replacement heifers. Before we get into those things, guys, I've got, I've got a couple things, and, and once in a while, my family will actually make fun of me for them. Believe it or not, I know it's shocking. There's only a couple of those things? <laughs> There's only a couple <laughs> things, right? And, and I'll, I'll tell you, one is I like to have a cup of coffee in the afternoon, and two, I go to bed pretty early. Both of which you might consider an old person thing. Mm-hmm. I don't consider that. No, of course not, no. But I want to know what's one thing that you guys do that your younger self would have said, oh, that's an old person thing. What is? What have you picked up that you would say as a young person? <laughs> now, Bob, you can't just start listing things that you do. <laughs> you can't just start listing your day. I, what do you mean? I don't do anything that an old person does, yeah. Now, I probably it would be wear slippers around the house. I didn't used to do that. <laughs> that that's, there you go. Mm. I I don't need to figure out what my younger self would say. I have kids that tell me all the time that the stuff I do. So, yeah, it's my choice in clothes, my choice of shoes. Yeah, all of it. Yeah, you got yeah. the classic. Yeah, Dustin and Philip are yeah, thinking they're yeah, not, they don't do anything. We're not there yet. <laughs> 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 yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I you know I forget a lot of things. I ask the same question five minutes. My kids are just like uh, I like asking the same question over and you over. Just ask me. Yeah. Well, I guess mine mine would probably be asking them to say it several times because I didn't hear or understand what they said. That's See? true as well. <laughs> it's kind of hitting a little close to home there, Brad. You guys have made me feel so much better though. <laughs> That's what we're here for. Excellent. So let's talk, let's talk silage. And, and Philip, we had a great question from a listener and, and gave pretty good detail and essentially talking about starting lightweight calves, four to 600 pounds. They come in, they've been doing this for several years, but sometimes it seems like, and, and especially recently, it seems like the calves haven't wanted to take off to silage. So they're feeding some silage with some distillers, some ground hay, some protein, a little bit of cracked corn, but there's a silage mixed in at about 50% with the rest of that ration. And it seems like the calves are not taking to it. So I'm going to go to you first and get your ideas on what might be going on here. Well, to start with, I mean, silage has a, I mean, it's fermented, so it has a different smell. It has a different taste to it than anything calves are typically used to. And so starting them on it slowly is a good idea. And this this producer in his question says, yeah, we start them on about 10% silage and we work them up to about 50%. But he, what he's, he's saying is that the, the calves, a lot of the calves recent, in recent years are refusing to get adapted to it and, and taking much longer to get adapted to it. So he's got calves that are not eating as like they should as he's ramping up the amount of silage. Um, and so um, we do different things. We, you know, we put the silage on top of something that is more palatable so that they have to kind of eat through the silage to get to something that they want uh, more of. Um, and so things like that to try to get those calves adapted to silage. But as, as far as the problem, there are some issues that you can have with silage if you don't get the fermentation right. So if it's too dry when you put it up or if it's too wet, there's a, there's a Goldilocks uh, uh, moisture content there. 
um, because we can have, uh, especially if it's too wet, we can have what's a, called a butyric uh, fermentation, and it, it gets a very nasty odor. Um, it has a lot of seepage um, out of it, and that will really turn cattle off to eating it. Yeah, and I think, Dustin, I think you didn't you make some beer at home one time, which is a fermentation process, and it, if it goes wrong, it's not good. Uh, I would agree with that, but no, I have never made that's beer. Or that's wine. me. Yo, uh, that's Brian, you've yeah. made beer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've made some bad batches. Would you yeah. agree if it goes if it goes wrong the process? Uh, yeah, don't don't use bread yeast to make beer. I can tell you it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, but but I think that's similar to what you're talking about. You you might have the right ingredients and it's off just a little bit in one way or the other. That ensiling process is is really critical. So mm-hmm. how do I know if I get it right? Well, so a couple of things to to think about. You can. If it's really off, you can probably tell when you dig into the, the pit or the silo of the, the smell and the consistency of it. Because it's, if it's too dry, it'll be moldy. It'll, you'll have a lot more dry matter loss and, and things like that. Um, but you can do a couple of things to, one, take a sample and send it to a forage lab and have, it, have a fermentation analysis done and make sure that the proportion of acetic acid, lactic acid, and butyric acid are correct, um, that you got a good fermentation. The other thing is, when you're putting it up, is to use some silage inoculants, Um, making sure you've got the right bacteria in there, a high enough concentration so that you get a good fermentation um, on that batch when you're you're putting up the silage. I think one of the challenges with silage is, like, these, the changes aren't necessary they can be a whole batch of silage but they don't have to be right and so silage when you say silage you know if you've got a large pit you're really talking there's for lack of a better term there's almost microclimates within that silage pit right and so what what this listener has described is you know one batch of calves takes off fine and then another batch doesn't do well and and it really could be that it, it could be if they're doing there it could be a silage packing issue where you know you get into a certain point and you've got this you've got a fermentation issue but then you feed through it relatively quickly and the next batch would be fine too so i agree with philip my my additional comment would be is to if you're going to do the the silage forage analysis or fermentation analysis take the samples as you're feeding and then if you have a group of calves that goes off go back and run that back, like put it in the freezer and run that batch. Don't go, okay, now I've got a group that's off feed and then take a sample because like you could be behind the eight ball and you're now into a different part of the silage pit and it's not going to be representative of what's actually causing the issue. Yeah. One of the things that I'm hearing is, um, you know, silage production is, is relatively complicated as far as, you know, and even, even in the, in the same field as, as, as you go through the ensiling process, um, getting the, the pit silo packed and, and, you know, the moisture of the, of the crop when you harvest it, all, a lot of variabilities. So that the way, what I'm coming back to is the listener question was if in one way they were asking, have cattle changed? Are, are the cattle not adapting to the silage as well? And I suppose that's possible, but it's pretty hard for me to imagine that. I think, I think maybe more likely is there's variability in the silage itself, which I think when I think about feeding silage to calves, particularly, you know, starting calves on silage, I think you're just going to have to really watch that group and, and not necessarily follow a, 
set schedule, but let the calves tell you when you can start increasing the amount of silage. And there may be some pretty big group-to-group differences. And, you know, maybe it has a little bit to do with the, you know, the size and age of the calves and what they've been exposed to in the past. But I think a lot of it might be the differences in silage, as you guys have been mentioning, um, that I, I really just need to read the cattle and be willing to go a little slower. I think that's a key component. And, and in this question, you talked about maybe developing some respiratory disease. They went off feed. They did this, that. I, I would think back to the calf side, too. So don't forget. I mean, so we could talk a lot about silage. But if I have calves that are going to get sick, regardless of what they're eating, it's likely they're going to go off feed. They're going to have issues. So that may be part of the equation as well, not just the silage. And that's where you've got to sort out because there's no reason that silage would cause respiratory disease, but it could cause them to go off feed. Yeah. The cause and effect there. Is it, is it the silage that's causing them to go off feed and get sick or are they getting sick and going off feed? Yeah. And so, yeah, it could be effect and cause or cause and effect. And uh-huh. you, don't, you don't know which direction that's flowing. And this, they talk about the listener question talks specifically about the silage, but if there's a change in the composition of the silage, then there's other parts of the ration too to consider, right? Like we're focusing on the silage, and it, I mean, because it's probably more complicated than some of the other components, but there are other components in that ration to look at as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a great question. You've got to kind of sort through the process, getting them started on feed, but we, we don't know of any particular reason that it would just be the silage other than some of the stuff that you guys discussed as you go through the process. So hopefully give us some feedback on, on how things change and hopefully it goes better this year. Today is March 1st, so it's Cattleman's Day. Hopefully everyone is enjoying a good day listening to sessions. There's the bull sale later today. Lots of things going on. Great opportunity to visit with other people in the profession and learn from some of the real experts. As that bull sale is today, and we're kind of in bull sale season, guys, I wanted to ask your opinions on how do I pick the right bull for my operation? What are some of the things you look at? Well, I think there's some kind of hard science and soft science aspects to this. Some of the hard science is we have genetic tools like EPDs and even genomic testing, which I think give us a lot more information about the genetics of bulls and and some traits that we might be interested in. But then there's the soft science side of buying from producers that I really trust over time that they're producing the the types of bulls that I want to buy. And so I, I am buying reputation. And I think there's there's both data and reputation that goes into picking which bull sale I attend. Yeah, absolutely. And some of that, not just reputation, but the service after the sale, some of those things. And maybe that all, all bleeds in there because that's like whether you're buying a vehicle or something else. Th- those are a piece of the equation. It's not just that individual vehicle. Yeah, and I, I think, I mean, I kinda, it's kind of understated, right? But if, if you're purchasing from a reputable sailor, then... I mean, there's all the there's all the health aspects that you want to get into, right? So, you know, EPDs, genomic tools, that's about the potential for that animal. But I want to know, I want some information about where he's at right now. And I guess if I want to even expand that out, I I just start with, you know, what, give me give me some data about his breeding soundness exam. So, you know, that should be comprehensive enough. It gives me some information about his reproductive potential. It should give me some information about his ability to basically have the stamina to get through a breeding season, eyes, feet, legs, body condition, all of that would be included that, you know, the, and it's really baseline, but 
but I think it's important not to skip over that. Like you have to have that in play. Well, the thing I was going to say, I think picking the right bull starts way before you get to the bull sale or even look at the bull catalog and sitting down and figuring out from your cow herd, what do you want to make improvements on? And what do you think is at the optimum level from a performance standpoint so that you know what you need to look for in that bull um, from a genetic standpoint and so taking the time to do that up front I think makes picking that bull a whole lot more effective um, than just looking at what's the best one in the sale catalog I want to look for one that I want that matches what I need and if there's not one in the sale catalog I go to the next sale catalog so you're saying you have to identify your needs first Mm -hmm. not just look and say pick the best of these and I think that's a really important distinction because you you have to have criteria that you're sorting on because you're not just the best one within this sale. Good, great point. So I'm just going to follow up on what Philip's comment was, but then Bob mentioned, did you say soft science? Is that what you said? Soft science, yeah. Soft science. Yeah. So kind That's of, different than sock science. Which <laughs> is, <laughs> if he said sock science, that's a whole different field. So my thought was kind of what both there was a, what's your marketing plan? So what is the, what are you you know, marketing those calves, which I think comes back to Philip's comment. The other thing I think keep in mind is what's the current market conditions. I mean, that's probably also going to drive how much you're willing to, I guess, pay for a bull. So a couple things, I, I, that's what I would keep in mind is what's the current market conditions, but also what's the marketing plan? Well, your marketing plan comment, you're talking about the calf marketing plan? That's what I was referring to, yeah. Yeah, so whether or not I'm keeping the calves, I'm retaining an ownership, I'm feeding them all the way out, do carcass traits matter? Do weaning traits matter? Do reproductive traits matter if I'm keeping heifers? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and I'll go back to, uh, you know, Brian kind of emphasized the the breeding soundness exam. No matter how good the potential of this bull is from a genetic standpoint, he needs to be fertile. I mean, we can't get very many offspring if he's not going to successfully breed cows. And so that breeding soundness exam is really important. That being said, a lot of times these are yearling bull sales. You know, maybe they're a little bit long yearlings, but relatively close to puberty and one of the things that we're really looking at is well has he reached puberty is he ready to be a good breeder this breeding season the one limitation of a breeding soundness exam is that doesn't necessarily predict how well he's going to do the year following and the year following that's where some of the things like reputation and and uh, history of that bull supplier providing bulls that you know have the foot and leg structure the longevity the fertility that kind of goes into multiple seasons that's that's part of that really assessing will this bull get cows bred over multiple breeding season will he do what i want him to do and to me that's that is one of the baselines before i even really decide which which one has the best genetics because again i don't want to pick either or i want a bull that gets cows bred that has the genetics that i want but i want to make sure that i'm looking at it both ways and not just looking at you know by numbers which bull is the genetic has the highest genetic potential um, i'm looking at other factors in addition to that and sometimes you go into the sale and you guys have talked about it and i agree with what you're saying on the breeding soundness exam one one additional point is it's it's for today right is he ready to breed today that doesn't mean i can just turn him loose and not ever continue to evaluate him when he's out there with the cows because some of those things could change especially the locomotion how well he gets around his body condition some of the stuff that you talked about brian previously but i I wanted to ask you guys i get to the sale i've got a bull picked out or i've got a couple picked out how do i decide 
not just my willingness to pay, but how much I should necessarily pay for that bull. Because you said I've got to consult my marketing plan, but there's trade-offs. And the best bull of the sale may be out of my price range, but I need to figure out what is my price range. Any advice on setting that range? What should I look at? Well, this is where the advantage of actually going to multiple sales or at least kind of you know, following some of the ag publications will list some, some sale results. So I think you need to have a ballpark idea of what bulls are going for now. And, and it may be higher than the last time you bought bulls if you don't buy bulls very recently. And so having a ballpark idea and then kind of anytime you're at an auction, whether it's an old equipment auction or a cattle auction, you need to have some discipline to set a price and kind of stick with it. As long as, long as that was a realistic price, uh, there are other bulls for sale that might fit your, your needs. Um, but having some discipline, but, but it, I'm not answering your question, but it, you need to know a price. And, but it's also based on what we were saying before marketing. So if we're selling at weaning, well, that weaning weight EPD is going to be really important. If we're going to own those cattle on through slaughter, well, then some carcass weight, carcass characteristics EPDs also become really important. And so you do need to know what you're selling and then you can do a little bit of math to try to figure out what, what you think the prices are going to be then and, and how much more production I can get from one bull versus another. But in, in, in a way, the more, I, the more I talk, the more I realize there's, there's a number of projections out there. And so you're not always going to be accurate. That's, that's kind of where I was going, Bob. And, you know, you can sit down and kind of do some math, figure out, okay, how long is this bull going to be around? How many calves is he going to sire? What's my expected income from those calves and kind of figure some stuff out there. But it's difficult to put a number on the genetic potential. Like how much more weaning weight am I going to get out of this bull or how much more yielding weight or how, you know, if, if I'm retaining ownership, what's that extra carcass quality going to do from a financial standpoint? And so that becomes the difficult part in my mind is how do you put a dollar value on that genetic potential? of this bull versus that bull because they're both probably going to sire the same number of calves and over their lifetime yeah and i mean there's always there's always risk right i mean there's there's injury risk there's all there's you know if you've modeled it out like i'm going to get three breeding seasons out of this bull and you get one it doesn't matter right and so but i think I think what you said was a really good point is you've got a ballpark, but it really becomes a bull to bull comparison and is, is what I'm paying in a premium for this bull, do I expect to get that back versus a cheaper bull that maybe has a little less genetic potential, but they both have essentially the same risk moving forward, right? Like health risk, injury risk, those things, you know, so is that premium worth it to get essentially a bull that's really, really close, I think is where you end up. Yeah, absolutely. Great thoughts, guys. And I like the key points of decide what you want before the sale. Make sure he's passed a BSE. Make sure he fits your operation, which means understanding your marketing program. And then set that price range for yourself as you go into it. Good luck this bull buying season. Hope, hope everybody gets the one that they want. I wanted to follow up and answer a, a listener question here, and I'll, I'll frame it a little bit for you guys. But the question was on vaccinations in replacement heifers. And I'm going to frame it as, let's say these are well-vaccinated heifers at weaning, but they've had nothing done to them as we go to their first breeding season so we're at either that pre-breeding time or at breeding and and 
Brian, I'm going to start with you. What are some of the things you start thinking about when we talk about vaccinating these replacement heifers? Yeah, so so one thing is um, kind of balancing. You want you want to have enough protection that you're you're not going to have disease outbreaks in your herd, right? I mean, that's kind of the basic tenet of vaccination. And even if they're even if they're well vaccinated at weaning, um, there's still going to be a certain percentage that maybe haven't responded to that point. And so, and there, there are some things that you want to make sure that the level of immunity, you know, if they're vaccinated at weaning, maybe there was some, still some maternal influence antibody. And so you're trying to, you're trying to cover the herd, right? Is kind of how I'm looking at uh, pre-breeding vaccinations. Um, and, you know, especially when I start thinking about vaccines for things that would cause abortions or outbreaks and things like that, that's kind of where my focus is. So it, for me, it's, it's probably more about the group than it is any particular individual. And so that's how I'm approaching my vaccine plan. So are there, as you're talking about vaccinating these heifers, is there any concerns or issues if you're vaccinating them near the breeding time? There's some evidence that maybe we need to be aware of potential negatives. And, And it's been shown most clearly in heifers that were really naive. In other words, they hadn't built a good immune response and if we give them kind of their first exposure to a modified live uh, vaccine uh, right at the time of breeding, we might have some negative effects. I think a lot of those concerns go away if, if we've kind of followed a systematic program and they've been exposed to uh, the, the vaccine antigens several times leading up to breeding. But in, in general, one of my recommendations is I prefer not to um, do much of anything in just the week before they're getting bred. And so if we're getting really close, you know, like at the time we're, if we're using a synchronization protocol or something like that, I'd prefer not to do anything else except the synchronization protocol at that time. So I would say a little bit, there's a little bit of a concern there. And I'm just trying to let the heifer's body focus on getting bred at that time, which means then, so when do I vaccinate? Well, I just back it up a little bit of time. Um, And so Brian was saying a lot of times when we're vaccinating around weaning, one of our concerns is that's a time period where we're a little bit more concerned about respiratory disease. We're weaning the animals at that time. We might be moving them to a different location, even if it's replacement heifers um, that are staying on the operation. They move, may move to a different place and be commingled with other heifers, those types of things. And so I'm really worried about respiratory disease. One of the interesting things is um, when we talk about viral vaccines, there's two viruses that cause respiratory disease, IVR virus and BVD virus that can also cause abortion. And so we're actually using the same product, the, the, the vaccine for those viruses in wean calves are really thinking about protecting them against pneumonia. When I'm using that in heifers that are approaching their first breeding season, what I'm trying to do is set them up so that they're protected against abortion. And so those two viruses, IBR and BVD, would definitely be in my vaccination protocol leading up to the time that they're going to be bred. And I'd like a couple of doses into them ahead of the breeding season, but not right before the breeding season. And then some other vaccines that I might include are leptovirus, or excuse me, leptospira, which is a bacteria, and um, a Vibrio vaccine. They usually are packaged together. And so a lot of times I will give them a vaccine with IBR and BVD viruses and lepto and Vibrio bacteria. Yeah, and the other thing about the timing part is that because we're working through the immune system, it's a vaccine. It's not it's not a drug where we expect a quick response. You know, we want to back that up. We want to give them most of them where we talk about weeks to months 
to develop that immune response. And so doing it at the time of breeding, if again, if they've been exposed previously, maybe you get a little bit of leeway, but really we need to give that immune system time to respond. So I, I agree with Bob, not, not at the time of breeding, get it backed up so you get the actual response you're looking for. Great question. And as you guys are talking about, it is an important issue because this sets the baseline for the herd in the future. So making sure you have a good vaccination program for those replacement heifers is important. As always, we appreciate you listening. And if you have listener questions for us or things you'd like us to talk about, you can send us an email at bci.ksu.edu.